listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Welcome to our show. This is Aaron Fishman, back on the pod for the first time this calendar year. Special thanks to my co-host Lauren for holding it down so well in January. In early August, we discussed the Minnesota Timberwolves' action-packed offseason with Tim Fakeless, who saw a fifth or sixth seed in the Wolves' future. Six months later, things are looking pretty good for the Timberwolves. This Sunday, I was excited to check in with Billy Bull during nap time at the Bull household. The team he covers for ESPN True Hoops, A Wolf Among Wolves, currently stands in fourth place in the Western Conference and hasn't dropped a home contest since December 16th. Jimmy Butler and Carl Anthony Towns are turning in spectacular seasons for an explosive offense, but the squad's defensive output is leaving much to be desired and it struggles to close out games. Changing gears for a moment, I'd like to encourage listeners and supporters to leave us a brief rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you access the podcast. Doing so allows us to reach new audiences each week, and we sincerely thank you for that. Speaking of gratitude, our guest deserves some of that for predicting the off-season Jimmy Butler trade with near accuracy in April 2016, more than 14 months before it actually transpired. In his words, he posted the Jimmy Butler trade into existence. He knew Butler would be a tremendous fit and that Minnesota would have the assets to make it happen. Bill never quit writing about the potential trade despite the naysayers telling him it was a, quote, pipe dream and completely unrealistic. One final note before I bring Billy on. On this episode, we'll be unveiling an exciting new Sexy Stats feature in which one of your hosts will share a relevant team or player statistic before we return to the remainder of the interview. So stay tuned for that. Without further ado, no more howling at the moon. Billy Ball is here and ready to dispense Timberwolves knowledge. Hey Billy, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It's going to be a lot of fun talking about this Timberwolves team. They had such a busy offseason. We'll start with a positive here. They're just so much better than last season. They're presently enjoying a 12-game home winning streak while boasting a 111.1 offensive rating that's good for third in the league behind the Rockets and Warriors. What, if anything, in your mind, other than the personnel upgrades and the adding of those veterans to the young core, is helping them be so successful right off the bat? Well, I I would say... A couple of things, you know, not it's not just the veterans that they added, um, Butler and Teague and uh, Taj Gibson. It's not just those three. I think Carl Anthony Towns has gotten a lot better this season. Um, he's having a, an unbelievably efficient season offensively now that he doesn't have to be kind of the main option anymore. His uh, efficiency has just skyrocketed. And um, I think they're getting to be, you know, a little bit better on the defensive end as well. The numbers don't really show it yet 
and I'm sure they would be the first to tell you it's not progressing quite as fast as they wish it would, but there is some improvement on the defensive and they're, they're looking a little bit sharper. So it's, uh, it's been a number of things that, that trickle down effect of adding those three, um, plus the improvement of Towns especially is, has been what's kind of propelled them forward to being a playoff team this year. You mentioned the defense. You see a, an improvement, even if it hasn't manifested itself in the advanced stats that much. But it seems to me like a big weakness still. They rank in the bottom third right now in terms of defensive rating, defensive efficiency. And that's despite being led by a defensive-minded head coach and Tom Thibodeau and having guys like Jimmy Butler and Taj Gibson playing big minutes. Is that a real concern for you as the season progresses heading into the postseason? Yeah, it's going to have to be because they're having trouble getting stops, especially in fourth quarters, you know, when they really, really need them. Uh, and they, they just have a tough time staying in front of people and defending the paint. You know, for as much as I like to champion Carl's, you know, improvement there, they're just having such problems actually protecting the rim. Like his, his at the rim defensive stats still aren't anything that are going to impress me. I think he's allowing like 55% shooting at the rim. Whereas, you know, some of those real stalwart bigs like, like Rudy Gobert or somebody, it's like down in the low forties. So he doesn't definitely doesn't, uh, you know, protect the rim as, as well as you hope he would. So we talked about the defense. Would you pinpoint that as the biggest area of concern or is there something else that comes to mind for you? Well, the defense is, you know, something that's a, a like a full game concern, but in particular, uh, closing games out. Earlier in the season, I wrote an article just right before Christmas where I had done some research and that they were getting outscored um, by like 11 points per 100 possessions in fourth quarters, which was like historically bad. The only teams that have been getting outscored that badly over the past decade have been like one of the worst teams in the league you know like those yeah. that, that bobcats team at 759 or something like that i think even they were better in fourth quarters than the wolves were through like two months but uh yes you know, over the past you know since that time they've gotten a lot better i guess over the past two months i think they've only been outscored by like two points per 100 in fourth quarters but just in general you know like we saw this week in those great games against cleveland and chicago just having trouble closing games out even when they have leads um, their crunch time offense or clutch offense kind of has a tendency to turn into a lot of Jimmy Butler holding the ball, not a lot of ball movement, not getting Towns involved enough. That's a big problem. You know, that's something that I would like to see some updates to because I think they're becoming a little too reliant on Butler and not getting the ball into Towns' hands enough, um, which, you know, Butler is obviously a very dynamic player, but like, you know, Towns is you know, shooting 55% from the floor. You know, he's one of the best shooters, not just on his team, but really in the whole league. So he, he just needs to have the ball in his hands more often when it matters most. Yeah, that makes sense that when you add a guy of the caliber of Jimmy Butler, that there's a real danger of the offense growing stagnant toward the end of games. It's promising that, like you said, it's improving. But you would think also, though, that adding these key veterans to the young core would go a long way toward resolving that issue with closing games. Does the fact that they do have these veterans, though, give you more optimism that they'll be able to finally start to resolve it? 
Yeah, it, it does. You know, I think Jimmy Butler is one of the best two-way players in the league. And beyond that, just his personality, he is the alpha dog of the team. Um, and he wants to win badly. And uh, I like Todd Gibson is pretty, you know, indispensable when it comes to that stuff. He's been in Ditto's system for so long. And he's really one of the best, you know, I think teammates that any of these guys, any of these other guys will ever have. So they've gelled pretty well. All things considered, like you look at what is going on in like Oklahoma City, where the chemistry just has never quite fit. And I don't worry about that at all with the Timberwolves. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I, I do have confidence that they'll figure it out because the people they've got the right people in place to make it happen. So yeah, I would say I, I'm pretty confident that that'll improve as the season goes along. Before Sunday's games, Minnesota finds itself one and a half games behind third place San Antonio. And they're two games ahead of the Blazers and Thunder and three games ahead of the surging Nuggets. Is acquiring the third seed probably the Timberwolves' best case scenario? I don't think they're gonna overtake um Golden State or Houston, obviously. You know, I think I think of the West as kind of, you know, those two are in a tier by themselves and then below that I, I think that San Antonio and Minnesota are kinda of in that second tier by themselves. And then after that it gets into a real shuffle. Oklahoma City definitely has, you know, more talent to be kind of up there with San Antonio and Minnesota, but they just haven't put it together yet for whatever reason. So I would say, you know, getting into that third seed, probably overtaking San Antonio should be their goal, probably. To what extent is the third seed much more preferable than the the fourth seed, just in trying to avoid the Warriors in the second round? Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, Yeah, I think it is preferable. But again, you know, uh, you don't want to look too far ahead. Um, you know, it, it almost doesn't matter. It, it's tough to say because I, I don't think they want to face Oklahoma City in the first round. Like you talk about the problems with chemistry, but it's still, you know, three dynamic, you know, stars. I, I wouldn't want to face Russell Westbrook in a playoff series. You know, right now, if they were the third seed, I think the Thunder would be the sixth seed technically. So, you know, I really think that that would be a great matchup either. I would much rather face Portland, no disrespect to them, obviously. I'd much rather face Portland in the first round. So I kind of, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say. It's hard to decipher just which route you want to take because I, to be perfectly frank, I don't think they'd have a chance against Houston either. I think they'd be in big trouble in the second round, no matter which of those two teams they faced. Yeah, that's probably fair. Things are just shuffling around so much too right now. So it's really early to say what you'd prefer for Minnesota. And you referenced this in your last response, just that barring something really unexpected, maybe some serious injury or something, Golden State and Houston look like locks pretty much for those top two seeds. And Minnesota's 0-3 against those two teams combined this season so kind of a small sample size, but they've really struggled to defend the three against those teams. They just have a lot of work to do to close that gap, if that's even possible. On the flip side, the Timberwolves are 25-9 and nine against Western Conference opponents. That's the second best in-conference record in the league. Only decimal points behind the Rockets. So I think that's a little bit promising with regard to just the rest of the West, how they measure up. What do you make of that? It's just such a an impressive record within the conference, or if that's just a weird coincidence or something. 
No, I think uh, I think there's something to it because I I think they are victims of their own ebbs and flows to to a certain degree. They really get up for for Western Conference opponents. They're doing terribly against the bottom of the East, for instance. You know, they've had a bad loss against. Um, uh, well, I've had a bunch of bad losses, but most recently with the stick out, they had a really bad loss against Atlanta. You know, Chicago. You know, Chicago played really well that night, but that's a bad loss. They had a bad loss against Orlando. You know, bad loss against Brooklyn. <laughs> you know, they they've had some real problems, um, blown leads against bad teams. But you know, when it comes to taking care of business against the West, even other you know, decent teams in the West or mid-tier teams in the West. Like they've, uh, you know, they're the Clippers, they've taken care of, you know, Denver. They've, they've played well against Oklahoma City. So they, they get up for the teams that they want to, and then they, they, tend, to, they tend to struggle or um, kind of be a little lax against teams they should beat. But it, what it shows, I think, to, to kind of say it more succinctly, they get up for the teams that they want to. So, And I think that record against the West really shows it. What you're just describing, though, is do you think that the Warriors and Rockets is kind of an exception? Or maybe they get up for those games, but just personnel-wise, they're just incapable at this point of dueling them? Yeah, I think the the Rockets and the Warriors are the exception to a lot of rules. (laughs) You know, they're they're just just such nightmares to match up (laughs) with. Yeah, the the Wolves just don't have um, the defensive wings. you know, and Butler's great and Wiggins is okay, but they don't have the depth on the wings or anybody that can really guard the paint. Um, even when, when they start flying, that's a problem. But then when they start to you know really attack the rim, they, they don't really have anybody that can handle that either. So they have a lot of problems against those two in particular. This may seem a little weird. I'm a weird guy, I guess. But w- this topic <laughs> I really was interested in discussing with you is how Tom Thibodeau's received so much flack over the years for how many minutes he plays his starters, goes back to his days coaching the Bulls. And three of his guys currently rank among the league's top 15 in minutes per game. That's Butler, Wiggins, and Carl Anthony Towns, each playing upwards of 35 minutes per game. And of course, Butler's leading the league with 37.2. I know the minutes were reined in a little bit in the month of January. December's minutes, I don't know if you've seen those. I'm assuming you have, were ridiculous yeah. through the roof. But the team did go 10 and 5 and won a lot of games on the road where they've struggled otherwise. To what extent does Thibodeau care about monitoring those minutes going forward before the postseason? I mean, I, I don't know if it. I don't know if he will. Um, you know, the wolves aren't terribly deep, especially on the wing, uh, and they need Carl Anthony Towns to be on the court when Jimmy Butler is sitting. So they have to stagger those minutes, and that ends up driving up Carl's minutes a bunch. You know, I don't worry about it too much um, as far as Wiggins or Towns is concerned. The part where that that troubles me a little that you know. I, I try to be as optimistic as I can, but you know, Jimmy Butler's already had, he's had a couple of little tweaks with his knee this season and, you know, and maybe it'll be fine this year and next year, but if they're going to give Butler a huge contract extension, this is something that I worry about, you know, when he's 32, 33, 34 years old, because he's really taking a heavy, heavy toll. Um, you know, and, and I do wonder if they're going to hold up, 
you know, I, I kind of get the argument. The Wolves broadcasters do defend, they defend Thibodeau by saying, you know, like you got to establish the culture of work. You've got to grind and get the team into the postseason this year. It's been 13 years. It's been long enough. You got to do whatever, you, whatever it takes to get into the postseason this year. And I understand that. But yeah, like everyone else, all of us on the outside, um, it's hard not to think, you know, man, you don't really have a bench, but you, you'll never learn to trust any of the bench guys if you never ever play them anyway. So, yeah. you know, it'd be nice to see some of those minutes totals run down. And especially when, when you're up 20 with four minutes to go, it's like, just get the starters out of there, man, you know? Yeah. Whereas I think Thibodeau thinks, well, they've it's only four minutes. They can they can run it out. Like man, just get get some of these other guys run, yeah. you know. But it's uh it's the Thibodeau way. Wiggins and Cat are only twenty two in Thibodeau's defense, and Butler's still in this prime. But Butler expends so much energy on both sides of the ball, and what you said just about the toll that it could take—that's definitely a legitimate concern. And another thing, too, in Thibodeau's defense, how he's handled these minutes, even just a cursory look at their on-off numbers shows that Tyus Jones and every starter outside of Jeff Teague are the only players on the positive side. If you look at net rating differential, everyone else is negative. And so, I mean, you'd have to think that that plays prominently in his mind when he's allocating these minutes, just like you said, the lack of depth that's there. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, <laughs> there he was running out a back uh, backup wing rotation of Jamal Crawford and Shabazz Muhammad um, earlier this season, which I I don't know if you can if you could concoct a, a worse defensive pairing <laughs> in a laboratory. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're just so limited in, in what they do defensively. Um, so I, I think he gets a little bit afraid to take both of those two off the court Wiggins and, and Butler because he's really left with, with nothing else to work with. But, mm-hmm. you know, again, it, it's a shame because a guy like Marcus Joyce Hunt has shown some signs, but he hasn't really gotten a, a long look at any point or an extended look or regular minutes. Um, even when he's looked like a guy that could help with that, he's content to shorten up the rotations and keep them short. So there's really, uh, really nothing you can do at this point. Yeah. We learned earlier how important you were in bringing Jimmy Butler to Minnesota. <laughs> and his net rating differential plus 15.7 is, is so impressive. So the team's net rating when he's on the court is plus 8.1 and it's negative 7.6 while he's off. So again, no surprise that he's leading the league in minutes per game. Just describe for me, if you can, his wide-ranging impact on the team's success in this first season that he's back with Tom Thibodeau. It's hard to overstate it. You know, everything just makes more sense when he's on the court. Um, You know, the the habits are better. You know, Carl and Andrew Wiggins both, you know, as much as as we like them here in Minnesota, they both have bad tendencies. Um, Carl kind of gets happy feet and doesn't, you know, stay in front and defend as well as should near the rim. Andrew Wiggins can kind of drift and disappear from time to time. I don't know. It's I like I don't I try not to get too psychological, but there's you know a certain fire that Jimmy brings to the table that Andrew Wiggins is much more of a quiet kind of passive guy, 
And I think it, it does affect, you know, how you, you know, how he approaches a Tuesday night game against Charlotte or whatever, you know, like Jimmy wants to win those games all the time, no matter what he wants to kick everybody's butt all the time. And um, I think that's infectious. Jimmy's important. Taj Gibson too, with the bigs, especially, you know, keeping them in the right spot. Taj has been really, really important and really good. I think for, you know, a lot of the guys on the team, um, just keeping them where they're supposed to be. So, but, you know, Jimmy specifically, like you asked, I mean, having a dynamic ball handler can shoot, you know, he's shooting 37% from three this season. You know, that's just a little above league average, but it's so important to have a guy like that that can actually knock down shots and get his own shot when he has to. It's just made everything easier. The trickle down effect for his teammates is, uh, yeah, it's really hard to overstate. And moving to Andrew Wiggins, and I think like Towns, he's made sacrifices, at least offensively, when you look at number of shots per game. But he signed that huge contract extension, five-year deal worth nearly $146.5 million just before the season. And that contract doesn't kick in until next season. And there's no player or team option involved. So just help us understand the risk-reward calculus that Minnesota likely went through when making that decision and how Wiggins is playing this season with a slightly different, less demanding offensive role. Yeah, I mean, you know, he... he uh, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, he's, he's handling the ball less um, against the set defense, which is important for him. You know, I think slashing to the rim uh, against, you know, I, you know, when the ball takes that second swing after, you know, you've already run one action, you can flip it to him and just let him go. That's been really good for him. Um, the, the one area, and, and again, I, and I know he worked hard on this, but it just hasn't shown up yet. And, and for whatever reason, um, and, and maybe we just need to stop expecting it to, is he, he is only shooting like 32% for three. So you do wish that that spot up shooting would get a little bit better. But he's been, you know, fine. He's a fine defender. He's making good passes. I don't feel like the ball sticks too much. He does sometimes revert to that, you know, step back long two thing, that single dribble long two that drives us all a little bit crazy. But <laughs> he's uh, he's fit into the pecking order correctly. And I don't think he's the kind of guy to gripe about it. So I think that's just as important as anything else. He's really tailored himself to it as best as I think can reasonably be expected. How much of a risk do you think they're taking in, in um, investing in him long-term? I mean, it's, it's one of those things where they were kind of in a catch 22. Um, you know, you can't exactly spend that money on a free agent because, you know, once, you know, once Towns gets his extension, Wiggins too, and then, you know, they'll have Butler's rights or whatever. They'll be able to lock in those three. I don't think you were going to find a comparable free agent for that salary or for even a lower salary that was going to come here long term. Um, so I think they were making a bet on him putting it all together. You know, I would have a lot more reservations about it if he had an injury history, but he doesn't. He's been very, very durable. So I think what they're hoping is, is being in a winning culture sort of fosters some more of what they want to see, you know, a little bit better shooting, a little bit better playmaking and distributing, and, um, you know, getting the ball to others in, in good spots and improved habits on the defensive end. That's what they're taking the bet on. I, I kind of think they had to do it. I, I guess I don't know. What, I'm always curious to know what others think of that deal because I know it's pretty polarizing. Like, did, did you yeah. kind of agree that they had to do it or do you think it was kind of a, a gamble? 
I mean, I think there's inherent risk when you're putting that much money going forward, giving so much to such a young player. But I do think they had to do it. As you said, that he didn't have a um, history of serious injury or really much injury at all. And any other team basically would have given him the max in free agency. So I think they made the right move, even though there's still some inherent risk involved. I just wanted to cite a quick stat. The four games that Butler was sidelined with that knee injury saw Wiggins averaging 25.8 points per game, and that includes a 40-point night against the Clippers at Staples Center, which I had the joy of attending. (laughs) Saw that. um, He just went off. And so, again, he's sacrificing a little bit with just fewer shot attempts with Jimmy Butler in town. So I think it's hard to assess his offensive game right now, even though he's still, he has some strengths and weaknesses, but yeah. So that's basically my take on it. Yeah. So just touching on the point guard situation for a second, I know the sample size is a little bit small on this. Tyus Jones has only started 10 games and that's been when Jeff Teague was injured a, a couple times this season. The Timberwolves went six and four as a team. So pretty solid. And a lot of the numbers look really good in Tyus Jones's favor relative to how the team plays when Jeff Teague is manning the point. So small sample size aside, or you can consider it whatever, who do you think is the better point guard for leading this team? And um, how do each of their contributions compare with each other? Oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, that that's the big... You know, aside from everything with Carl, Jimmy, and, and Wiggins, um, you know, that's the big question in Minnesota. And it's tough to look at it too rationally just because – or it's tough for me anyway, just because Tyus is a local kid. You know, and, and I I wasn't as a big fan of the move when they when they traded up uh, to, to take him. I thought it was a little bit played out. You know, well, we traded up to take the local guy. He went to high school here. He's from here. But I've been really impressed with him um, in his three seasons here, how much better he's gotten, how good he is at running NBA offense. He, he's a pretty good shooter. He's a decent finisher in transition. He runs an offense smoothly. He like never turns the ball over. And the Wolves as a team actually take really good care of the ball. So it's it's um, it's a kind of a team-wide thing. But Ty especially, they're much more – and this, this kind of factors into it a little. It's hard to not let it – they're much more aesthetically pleasing to watch when Tyus is running – the point Teague, you know it's effective but boy, there's a lot of ball holding there's a lot of him getting into the middle and kind of you know backing the ball out um to kind of reset he kind of dribbles to nowhere occasionally Tyus really understands the offense and really keeps everybody involved and really moves the ball very very effectively um you know I think if I boy you know Teague having two more seasons after this one at 19 million each it's going to look really um it's going to be tough because Tyus is going to be on a much more affordable deal. And I don't think you lose a ton going from Teague to Tyus Jones and thinking, you know, maybe that money could have been better spent on a different free agent that, you know, could have, you know, another free agent wing or something that could have helped at a more, you know, a, a position of need. So I, I, I think it's, uh, <laughs> it's a, uh, that's a tough one. That's the big controversy here in Minnesota. Yeah. I understand that he's very effective. He's a good shooter. But part of me does wish Tyus Jones kind of would get the starting job. I know it's a little bit of a controversial thing to say, but <laughs> that's kind of where I'm at. The thing that 
reminded me of uh, what you're saying about the ball stopping a little bit with Jeff Teague is there's this gif that was going around Twitter. Teague has just been getting killed on where they had a transition opportunity. Jimmy Butler's open to his right for three. He just dribbles just basically around in a circle and then the defense gets set and then I think I don't know if he turns the ball over after that or if they just lose their edge but offensively you know the one I'm talking about yes yep yeah I mean that that's it's pretty emblematic of everything that drives us us nuts here in Minnesota about when when he's on the floor yeah that was a pretty bad one (laughs) we'll be right back with more shows This is David Cohan on the NBA Beat. In this inaugural Sexy Stats segment, we'll focus on Timberwolves backup point guard Tyus Jones, who's filled in quite effectively for Jeff Teague when he's gone down with injury this season. First, let's compare the Timberwolves' starting five-man unit with Jeff Teague with the same starting lineup but with Tyus Jones in Teague's place. With Teague, the starters have a plus 8.4 net rating, In 259 minutes with Jones, however, the starter's net rating jumps to plus 24.3 points per 100 possessions. Both the offense and defense perform noticeably better with the 21-year-old on the court. My other favorite Tyus Jones stat, 25 three-man lineups have played at least 250 minutes for Minnesota this season. All of the top six qualifying three-man lineups feature Tyus Jones in them. For what it's worth, those lineups range in success from plus 25.1 to plus 14.3 points per 100 possessions. And now, back to the interview. We're a little short on time, but uh, there's just quickly touch upon this if you can. How real do you think the reported Derek Rose pursuit is after the Jazz waved him? I think it's real. I think it's I think it's very real. And again, you know, I just got done saying how much I like Tyus Jones. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because if you're going to slide Tyus out of the rotation and Derrick Rose in, I think Tyus is a better NBA player in 2018 than Derrick Rose is. Mm-hmm. So the fit is weird to me. Um, I don't like it for a lot of reasons. But all the, pe- the Wolves people that I trust say it's very real. The interest is real. So I'm kind of half expecting the a deal to get done. And we should note, too, that the Washington Wizards are reportedly going really hard after Derrick Rose, too. So might be a little right. bit of a... Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. I think they should sign him. <laughs> are you saying that from a selfish perspective? Here? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so. Um, so moving on, we're winding down here. Jamal Crawford and Taj Gibson were two other veteran acquisitions who basically have opposite playing styles. Crawford's a lot more flashy. Gibson, I think, is a lot more of a fundamental player, if less exciting to watch offensively. But he just gets the job done in a lot of really important ways. Just, if you can for me, compare and contrast their games and assess how each of them fits just this first year in Minnesota. Well, um, you know, Crawford has been, and they needed shooting. Everybody talks about how they need shooting, and, and that is kind of the most important thing that he brings to the table. He can get his own shot. He can kind of carry a second unit. But the problem is, obviously, defensively, which is where Taj Gibson really you know, does a lot for the team. You know, Taj is a very good defender, very smart defender, talks, 
keeps people in the right place, understands Tom Thibodeau's system, you know, maybe better than anybody. So I, I think he, that's the, the first big difference. And the second big difference is, you know, Gibson really uh, offensively, he fills gaps. Um, he doesn't really, ex, you know, there, there are no plays called for him, but when he gets an offensive rebound or if he gets an open shot, he is a willing shooter. He takes it. He's a pretty good mid range shooter. He's tried to expand out to three a little bit, but that's what they're asking him to do. It hasn't gone great, but that's what he's trying to fill his role. Whereas when Crawford's on the court, you know, his value is kind of tied to him being a high usage player. So on nights when he has it, you know, he really has it. He's going to dazzle you. But on nights when he doesn't, boy, he's a, he's a big negative. So I guess the difference between the two is, um, you know, Taj is very consistent, whereas Jamal is more of a boomer bust kind of player. I am glad they're both on the team, but I'm happier that, you know, I think Taj is going to be a more long-term fit here. Whereas Crawford, it's kind of hard to say. Yeah, I've gotten a chance to watch Crawford a lot, and I totally agree with all the things you said, up and down, output, and inconsistency. And just sometimes he can just be so electrifying to watch. Right. Just a couple more questions as we wind down, and I really do appreciate your time. There were a couple really epic road battles from Minnesota this last week. Unfortunately, they lost both games narrowly, both of them national TV games too, in Cleveland and in Chicago, filled with amazing storylines. Jimmy Butler's Chicago return, and Levine was facing his old team. Both of them had huge nights, and the Bulls one by one. And then the Cavaliers game, in which Jimmy Butler and LeBron James were going to head-to-head, and um, LeBron finished with a triple-double, and the Cavs won in overtime. Anything positive that the Timberwolves can take away from those two narrow losses? Well, I think from the Cavs game, um, I don't know. Any anytime you're on, you know, LeBron James's home floor, and you go toe to toe with them, yeah, that that's a it, that was that was a cool game. You know, I think um, they set the NBA record the two teams combined to hit more threes than uh, any other game in history, which was wow. you know pretty remarkable. Um, you know, kind of the same same thing. Whereas the defensive struggle, kind of, you know, might have turned off some people, but you know that that result kind of a fluky game kind of a crazy game you know that that loss was you know disappointing but not bad um they could take a lot out of that one um the chicago game where they had a big lead chicago's not they're playing better i think than a lot of people thought they would but they're not a quality nba team they're not a playoff team to blow the lead like that and then to lose it ultimately um boy that's a that, that was a tough loss that one was a bad loss and um you know, I think the two taking the two together kind of said a lot about where the Wolves team, this Wolves team, is at now. Um, yeah. You know, they have the talent to go toe to toe with really just about anyone, but they do tend to drift a little bit when there are games that they're they should win, probably should win. Last but not least, I want to provide you a space to brag a little bit more about Carl Anthony Towns. <laughs> Just an, another 22-year-old stud on this roster, along with Andrew Wiggins. And if you want to touch on these as well, that would be great. Just how impressed you've been with his development from three-point range. And you kind of already talked about this, but his evolution on the defensive side of things. I know you said he's not defending at the rim as well as you would have liked, but just if he's making strides defensively, I'd love to hear about that too. Well, you know, offensively, you know, he's shooting 55% from the floor, 43% from three, 85% from the line. 
Um, and he's seven feet tall. <laughs> you know that he's he he has been the best shooter on the team from the the day he arrived here. Um, that's that's remarkable. You know that that's amazing. Um, he is a dynamic offensive player. He can beat you in the post. He can beat you getting offensive rebounds. Um, he can step out. He can hit mid range shots. He can beat you so many ways offensively. He's really um, not something to be taken for granted by Timberwolves fans. You know, he's a really, really special offensive player. Defensively, you know, like I said, he has a lot of work to do. And I think he needs to get stronger. That, that's probably one thing still. You know, his third year in the league, you would, you would expect him to be able to handle himself a little bit better. But he still does get bullied quite a bit and pushed around. Um, so it would be nice if he added a little bit of weight and got a little stronger. Maybe he wants to play lighter because it helps him offensively, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, that that's, I guess, where the deficiency is. But, you know, what, what I will say about him this season is he's taking pride when he does play well defensively. Um, you know, when he does make a good rotation or he comes across the blocks a shot or he stands up to someone and handles himself on the defensive end. I see him occasionally taking pride in that. And what it would, it would be nice going forward is for him to kind of you know, derive a lot more self-worth or not self-worth, but, you know, kind of let that end speak for him a little bit more than the offensive end, you know, to really see him being a two-way player. And the good news is I think he's, you know, really the kind of person that you want to build your franchise around. So I have every faith and expectation that he'll ultimately put the whole thing together and, and become, you know, one of the top four or five players in the league. I think that's really his ceiling and I have every you know, I have every confidence that he'll ultimately get there. From interviews I've heard of him, he just seems to really get it, which yeah. is kind of rare for a guy that young. He always talks about taking care of his body, being aware of what he's putting into it from a nutritional standpoint. And you have to be so happy for his early success and so excited for what he's going to show going forward. One thing I wanted to mention before we close out, he's a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. He's been (laughs) since he was a kid growing up in New Jersey, and he got the exciting opportunity for the Players' Tribune to serve as a guest photographer on the field in last Sunday's Super Bowl, which, of course, was played in your hometown, Minneapolis. You're from Minneapolis, right? Is that correct? I'm originally from Wisconsin, but I live yeah in Minneapolis. Yep, Sorry yep. about that, but uh, we all my yeah, it's a common thing. We all migrate to the big city. It's where uh, it's where everything's happening. Yeah. You know, that's just such a cool thing. Did you get a chance to check out his pictures? Yeah, or? I did. Yeah, no, he's 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 an interesting guy. He's got a lot of interest photography. Um, you know, he's written a few things in the Players Tribune uh, about social issues too. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot there. He's a, he's an interesting, he's an interesting guy. He's got a lot of interests and I'm sure he made the most of having the Super Bowl here. Cause that was a, that was kind of a circus and they were, they were in town for like the whole thing. So, um, so that doesn't surprise me that he, he found a way to get on the field as a photographer. That was pretty cool to see. And one last closing fun fact, he, or maybe one of his assistants or something measures his portion size down to the ounce. <laughs> I learned that from his interview with J.J. Reddick. It was written in a feature, too, but I just think that's really interesting. Wow. Yeah, man, I, I wish I had a chef. <laughs> Same thing. Must be nice. Really nice. Yeah. Thanks again for joining me. It was a lot of fun. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, it's great to be here. <laughs>